Welcome to The Scope with Dr. K, where together we can reimagine GI care. Welcome to The Scope with Dr. K. We're going to open the show today as we always do by stating that the goal of this series is to present you with a broad scope of value-based care issues, mainly involving the field of gastroenterology, but also outside of GI as well. In each episode, we strive to bring you cutting edge information through a focused interview with an influential and interesting key opinion leader. Although through the first year of this podcast, we focused on three Ps, patients, providers, and payers, there are actually four Ps, patients, providers, plans, and payers. In one third of the cases, the plan is the payer, but in two thirds, the real payer is the self-funded employer. In order to address this fourth P, today we are for the first time going to interview a representative from the self-funded employer space. Our guest today is Elizabeth Mitchell, President and CEO of the Purchasers Business Group on Health. She leads PBGH in mobilizing healthcare purchasers, elevating the role and impact of primary care and creating functional healthcare markets to support high quality, affordable care in order to achieve measurable impacts on outcomes and affordability. She's been Senior Vice President for Healthcare and Community Health Transformation at Blue Shield of California. She served as President and CEO of the Network for Regional Healthcare Improvement and also served as CEO of Maine's Business Coalition on Health. Finally, she was elected to the Maine State Legislature and served as a state representative. Welcome to the show, Elizabeth. Thank you. I am really pleased to be here. (laughs) So I'd like to discuss value-based care from the point of view of the employer. In the past, you've been involved in care transformation from the commercial side at Blue Shield and the public side at PTAC. So how does the view of the self-funded employer differ from that of the commercial plan or public health institution? Well, it's a great question. And it is so, um, it's always stunning to me that folks don't realize that the people paying the bills are actually the employers. The health plans are just pass-throughs. So it is really critical that people connect the dots, that those healthcare prices or that waste in healthcare, that's all coming out of a core business of a U.S. manufacturer or tech company or retail company. So our members are jumbo employers, self-insured, everyone from you know Walmart to Boeing to Qualcomm, all industries, and they collectively spend $100 billion a year purchasing healthcare for over 15 million Americans. So, so they have a vested interest in the value of the care that they buy. Um, I would also just point out that uh, what they spend is truly 100% of the profit in the US healthcare system. Because we know, or I used to work in a health system, and I hear this from health systems daily, uh, Medicare and Medicaid don't pay their full costs. Now, I think that is a questionable assertion, but even if it were true, uh, that means that all of the profit is coming from my members and other employers who are paying whatever inflated price they get. So they have... um, they are very committed to changing the trajectory for affordability, but to their credit, and I think this is also something that is not 
well understood. My members prioritize quality over price anytime. They believe that the best care, better care costs less. So their primary focus is quality to re reduce total spend, but they are looking at um, all sorts of strategies around value-based purchasing because it's their obligation to their employees. So what are the main concerns other than quality? What drives the needs of the employers today? So if you think about it, you know, they have a, a population of employees who they obviously want to be healthy. They want them to be able to function in their jobs and their lives and communities. Um, so they are committed to health and equity. And I will say that they have elevated equity in the past year, you know, overdue, but um, really important. So they want to make sure that the care that they are paying for is actually keeping them healthy, which is part of the reason that they are so focused on primary care. They also want to make sure that they have um, access to the highest quality specialty in hospital care. So if they do need that care, they are going to the right place because they do know that quality varies. They know outcomes vary and it is very hard to get that information. There's so little meaningful transparency in the U S healthcare system. And, you know, they have spent a long time deferring that job to their health plans, but frankly, they know that the quality metrics that health plans use are pretty meaningless for the most part, that the networks they design are based on discounts. They really don't have anything to do with quality or patient experience. So even though, you know, that is really the health plan's day job, that's what they're hired to do. My members anyway, appreciate the fact that they're really not doing it very well. So they are um, increasingly prepared to intervene in the care delivery system and, you know, more direct purchasing because the, frankly, the people they have hired to do it on their behalf have let them down. You know, you, I'm going to, touch on a phrase you just used, the patient experience. As a provider, I was a provider for 35 years practicing gastroenterology, and our goal is to get the patient out of the hospital, uh, to make sure they're on the right medications. But we're seldom concerned about when they're going back to work. And the, the employers are sitting there with an empty desk. There's a continuum there that has to be focused on not only the plans, but the providers need to maintain a focus on. I, I couldn't agree more. And frankly, I believe that providers and clinical care teams are very well aligned with employers. They want the same thing. Healthy patients are healthy employees. So I think that is honestly the easiest point of alignment, but we do need to understand each other's perspectives. One of the things that I am kicking off actually next week um, is a forum for my jumbo employer members chaired by Boeing to understand what it's like for primary care providers to practice in the current payment system, right? They're frustrated by the lack of, you know, high quality, robust primary care. So I'm trying to set up a forum where they talk directly to each other. How does, how does, their payment strategy, you know, fee for service typically make it harder for physicians to deliver the, the best care. So, and what we want to come out of that with, and we have a commitment to do this for, you know, six to 12 months is really new payment models or approaches, new contract standards, um, and maybe more direct relationships. But we believe that 
physicians and employers have a lot of shared aims if we can establish those relationships in that communication. Most physicians, or should I say most providers, because it might not be necessarily a physician, deal with one patient at a time. That, that one patient gets their complete focus when they're dealing with them, but then when they're dealing with the next patient, they're not thinking about that previous patient. How do we change models so that we move from that to more of a proactive population-based care strategy? Well, that's certainly what we would hope to see. One of the things that um, PBGH does, we actually have um, something called the California Quality Collaborative. And we work directly with provider groups on changing care processes and team structures to achieve those exact aims. And we do that with other plans and providers. But we had a five-year federal grant that just wrapped up last year. And we worked with small and rural practices. And we found that if you get them the right data, right, they've got to have information so they have visibility into these populations. Um, and you help them build out the right care team. Maybe they need a care uh, team member who actually goes to patients' homes or goes into the community. How do they structure themselves to be most uh, responsive to the broadest sort of view of the patient, including social needs, housing, food, all of those things? Um, we know that that is achievable. So we also know, though, that, <laughs> that the current payment system doesn't pay for those things. It doesn't pay for someone to go you know, address needs in the home, or it doesn't pay for mental health, which is such a critical component of this. So we know it's doable with the right information, the right team structure, and the right flexibility and, and payment amounts. So we, we are trying to address all of those barriers simultaneously. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to The Scope with Dr. K. Our guest today is Elizabeth Mitchell, President and CEO of PBGH, the Purchasers Business Group on Health. Elizabeth, let's talk a little bit more about data systems. This is something that seems to be close to both of our hearts. What I have realized is that there's a lot of decisions that are even made at the plan without adequate knowledge of data. And it is so proprietary. It's so siloed. This is a challenge. And maybe the employers are the, are the group that's going to force the change necessary to get this data. If you're paying for the care, you ought to have access to the data. Do you think the employers are going to be better able to steer this ship than the providers have been able to? You know, I wish... Um... The answer was a resounding yes, but I will tell you our members, even though they are some of the biggest purchasers in the world, are often denied by their health plans when they make requests like this. Um, and remember, people don't necessarily want their employer to have a lot of identifiable data. Employees are not comfortable with that, and that's appropriate. We really need the information to be going to the clinicians where care should be managed. And I, it, it's not clear to me that employers will be you know, a key part of that. 
What they can do, however, is direct their plans to share data. Right now, there are contract provisions that the plans put in place that prohibit it. And you know, you'll see in some cases, gag clauses where they're not even allowed to release quality or cost information. So there's a lot of work to be done, but I, I think employers will have a role, but they're not going to be um, the sort of, the, the, they're not gonna own this data, nor should they. Where we are headed, and I think this is long overdue, is actually requiring, imp, requiring the collection and use of patient reported outcome measures, because we believe that is a key uh, indicator of actual care quality. Are the patients better? Are they able to resume the functions of their daily lives? This doesn't come from claims data or clinical data. It comes from patient surveys. So that is something that we highly value. We're testing it with oncologists and you know, we're testing it in health systems around mental health. So we believe that is um, a, a way around some of the data hoarding <laughs> for claims. Um, and it's a more meaningful indicator of, of patient experience and quality. That's a wonderful place to focus. And, and, and I hope more of that happens. Let's discuss the challenge of incorporating specialists into value-based care. I know you've been focused on primary care and I don't disagree with that, but we can't get to the finish line without the participation of specialists. Can you please talk a little bit about the importance of working with specialties and GI if you can? Well, of course. And I will say that PBGH over eight years ago created a Centers of Excellence network for specialty care. It was um, started by Walmart, McKesson and Lowe's and it was brought to PBGH for scaling. We were the operational partners there and expanded it to multiple conditions. And we used very robust, robust quality metrics to select participating specialists. And then we contracted with them directly because we couldn't get the health plans to, to participate in the way that we needed. We did prospective bundles with warranties. Uh, we used patient reported outcome measures and other patient experience metrics to select and evaluate care. And what happened was we got dramatically better outcomes and experience. And we were not focused on price because what we were looking for were better outcomes and lower total cost. And that was proven out you know, in spades. We saw over 50% reduction in actual surgeries that were deemed unnecessary. We were um, successful in reducing readmissions and infections. All of the things that you want for better care, which ultimately lowered total cost. So it was really considered a win-win for our members. I appreciate that um, narrow networks or COE programs aren't always popular among <laughs> provider groups. But on the other hand, we also believe it rewards and recognizes really high performers. And we are currently designing sort of 2.0 of that um, program right now. Obviously travel medicine is off the table and our members really wanted to go to regional anyway. And that expands the number of conditions that can be addressed uh, in, a, in a program like this. Maternity, which is obviously a major issue for commercial 
um, commercially insured, uh, mental health, substance use, maybe gastroenterology. We haven't we haven't gotten that far yet, but looking to partner more directly with specialty providers who are willing to participate in our quality assessments is definitely a direction that we are continuing. So does PBGH fund this? Well, our members are frankly the customers. Um, so they pay, they pay for the program if they participate. So if you had a, um, if you establish a program that was, uh, generating physician uh, patient reported outcomes measures and you were doing this outside of the plan this would be something that the your your employer groups would pay for and fund that's how it worked in the past yes i see it it was everybody's preference to go through the plans that makes yeah. it a whole lot easier right. for the employers the plans couldn't do it or they wouldn't do it they would not do the prospective payments, which is what the physicians wanted. They would not use our measurement systems, which we knew were quantifiably better. So we would love it if the plans would do this, but until they do, we have to have these carve-out programs. Elizabeth, you're preaching to the choir here. <laughs> one, of the, one of the challenges we have with Sonar is the provide, we want the providers to participate in value-based care. They don't have the infrastructure. Exactly. A GI practice has turned into a colonoscopy factory. They can crank those colonoscopies out very efficiently, but chronic care management for patients with chronic disease, there's just never been a financial incentive there for them to build the clinical infrastructure necessary to do that effectively. So at Sonar, we're investing and trying to assist the practices on that side. We have to invest. If we want to return, we're going to have to invest in the, the structural change that's necessary. We really do. And it, it shouldn't be this hard, right? <laughs> because it is in the interest of patients. It's in the interest of, you know, the folks paying the bills, us. It's in the interest of physicians, I think, because you can practice the kind of care that you know is best. And yet there's all these sort of entities in the middle who are, um, you know, enjoying the status quo. Yeah. You know, so how do we get to where we want to get to, though? It's going to take time for this industry to mature to get to a point where we have larger entities that are capable of providing a spectrum of services. Do you think the employer groups can be a, a catalyst for this type of development? I, I certainly hope so. Um, and I'm you know, making a pretty big bet on that. I will tell you though, it is a, a structural challenge because jumbo employers who have you know, headcount all over the country, it is very hard for them to do a lot of pilots. There are exceptions to that. The Walmarts of the world, the Disney's of the world, they are doing pilots. But typically when you sell something to a jumbo employer, it's gotta be pretty mature and it's gotta be pretty big, <laughs> right? Um, so what we are doing right now though, is we are finding some of them who are ready to invest in these new approaches and we are co-designing the products with them. So that is sort of where we're at now. You know, it's to be determined how scalable they are, but we have a lot of hope. And we've got great engagement from a number of employers who are 
you know, ready to do things differently. Is there a regional uh, tendency around the country where this is more likely to succeed than others? It depends a little bit on the market, how concentrated it is, and, you know, if there are any innovative provider leaders. But I, we hear from clinicians and health system leaders every week wanting to partner with employers. <laughs> that, yes. that is, there's no shortage of that. It's really, can do we have adequate headcount in their market? Because you can't change your practice for a handful of patients. And, you know, is there is there a meaningful opportunity for enough employers and enough providers to make a change? So right now we're targeting a, a subset of markets where we do have concentration of members to make collective change. And we're going to be kicking those off this year. Yeah. Cause when you think of a company that you've mentioned already a couple of times, like Boeing, I'm in Chicago, there's headquarters here, but the plants are all over the country on, on both coasts. So if a provider organization wanted to service that need, that's a pretty extensive network that would have to be put together. It is. And one of the things that we are also um, diving deeply into is what are the, is the role of digital? And I think, you know, the pandemic has shown us that mm -hmm. it's a lot bigger than we thought. So how can we expand access and, and spread some of this best practice with digital technology solutions. Um, and the other thing is we have been so stuck in, you know, bricks and mortar. I think that there is a huge opportunity for care in the home, care in the community. I was on a panel last week with someone from Mayo. They're doing hospital at home. Again, this was piloted and brought to PTAC, another great idea, but no one really had the incentive to do it. And now the pandemic has, I think, it really accelerated these um, um, these models that include alternative sites of care and are, you know, enabled with technology. So I think that's very hopeful. Yeah, to use, uh, I think it was Rahm Emanuel to said said, "Don't let a good crisis go to waste." And and uh, you know, so hopefully there will be some very positive things that come out of this this COVID crisis. But, you know, back to the GI space and, and specialty needs, there is a GI organization called the Digestive Health Physicians Association. And it's the largest organization of gastrointestinal specialists with over 2,000 gastroenterologists around the country, members of this entity. And I know they would love uh, I'm not in the leadership of it, but my, my, you know, I have friends who are, uh, I'm sure they would love to see if they can overlay on top of an employer's need. And it would seem to me from what you're telling me that that might be something interesting for the employers to be dealing with, especially an organization like yours that's a national organization. Yeah, it, it could be. I will warn you, we are a tiny shop, you know, small but oh. mighty. Um, so it's, there are capacity constraints on what we can do and do well. That said, you know, once we get this established up and running, I have no doubt that there will be interest in, you know, moving to gastroenterology. We will, we'll probably start with some of the more usual suspects. Um, I mean, just where they know that there are savings opportunities, but also quality opportunities like, you know, spine surgery or joint right. replacement. Um, but 
but absolutely there is an interest in partnering for better care. Well, there's 15 million colonoscopies performed every year in the country. So uh, it should rise, rise up to somebody's uh, radar screen. Yes. Um, but musculoskeletal back pain is, is enormous. I would imagine that's a major, major focus for employer groups. And, and oncology. Oh, yes, 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 major expenses. I would love to have, uh, as a final question to you, we've mentioned PTEC a number of times. Yeah. I, I would love to have you rub your crystal ball. And if you were back as the co-chair co of the PTEC, what would be your dream for where that organization could go to? I wish for PTAC that they would just implement some of the amazing ideas that they got from the field. I think PTAC proved exactly what you know was intended, that there are clinical leaders around the country with better ways to deliver and pay for care. There was no shortage of great ideas like yours. It is not a matter of not knowing what to do. It's all of the infrastructure that has to change to implement. So I just think it was, you know, just a, a truly sad squandered opportunity because we did have so many great models and you know, what a brain trust of a group. I mean, I was just so honored to work with both the, you know, submitters and the PTAC members. So it, all the potential is there if we can get out of our own way and implement it. And that's going to mean changes at CMS, changes at CMMI and changes at the commercial health plans and to actually be able to implement these innovative models. But as you said earlier, it's it's going to have to come. It's going to have to come from some higher entity that's that's able to impact change across because everything's so fragmented. My God, even Blue Cross is what thirty four different plans, you know. And um, United may be one company, but when you talk to them, they refer you back to the state that you know you're dealing with. So it's, it's so fragmented. Um, it's. Well, I, I have to say, I think there's huge potential in the Biden administration to drive this. And we've been talking to the transition team folks and, you know, pick a handful of those measures. You don't have to do everything at once, but right. pick some and, and just go do it. And, you know, maybe it's time to go past, you know, let a thousand flowers bloom. Let's make some bigger bets, make them mandatory in some cases, require the claims infrastructure that you know this will be implemented on to to actually be able to do this this is solvable and we have the clinical leaders who are ready to do this so i think it's just a matter of will and i think it's a great opportunity for the new administration and maybe they'll follow voltaire and not let the perfect be the enemy of the good exactly get something started well, Elizabeth, thank you very much for coming on today. I hope we uh, find a way of getting you back again in the future. Oh, I hope um, so. You can learn more about the show on the program's page on healthcarenowradio.com and lend your voice to the conversation on Twitter at HCNowRadio. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at SonarMD. We're bringing patients, providers, plans, and payers together to reimagine GI care 
Until next time, I'm Dr. K. Stay well. Thanks for listening. I'm Dr. K. Tune in with me next time to reimagine the scope of GI care. If we build it, they will join.